Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show. Yes, I'm calling. <clears throat> well, I don't really know where to start. Um, I'm, my cousin <clears throat> was just murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. His name is George Perry Floyd. Let me first express my prayers and condolences to you and your family over what we all have just witnessed on this unbelievable, horrific murder of your relative. I need some advice, because he was clearly murdered. He was literally begging to get air so he could breathe. Hey, how how is he done? He's actually 46. He'll be 47 uh, this year. Well, he would have been. I'm sorry. He was a uh, high school and college athlete. Yes, he was a superstar in his in his time. We're going to contact the Minneapolis police to tell them that we're representing uh, you all. Okay? Okay. They're going to try to make him out to be the worst person in the world. You're not alone, okay. Tara. No. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much. A familiar name is representing the family. Renowned civil rights attorney, Ben Crump. America is a capitalistic society. The one thing that America understands is money. If you can make them pay higher values, they will start killing black people. It would be an impediment. Mama, we out here on John's farm because we fighting for the black farmers. Were you taught how to use the products from my Santos? No. People seek me out because they want somebody they feel they can trust. It's not just fighting racism and discrimination in these police shooting cases. It's fighting racism and discrimination wherever it rears its ugly head. You gotta try to not just be a spectator on the sideline, get into the arena and do something. I have been given influence for a reason, and shame on me if I don't use that influence. I know who I am, and I know whose I am. Always argue what is right. And those were scenes from Civil a documentary about the persistent political struggle and personal life and mission of civil rights attorney Ben Crump, denounced on Fox News as, quote, the most dangerous man in America. Crump responds proudly, guilty as charged, in this conversation, phoning into the show. A lesser-known aspect of what he does, challenging racism and discrimination in the workplace across America, is also discussed and what it has to do with challenging capitalism, Crump's own roots as the child of a working-class single mother, and what he refers to as, quote, the black imagination as a key component of political struggle, even as, quote, there will be times when our hearts will be broken. Here's Ben Crump. Hi, how you doing, Perry? Hi, hello, and welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. And where are you calling from? I am calling from Miami, which is the location of the American Black Film Festival, which oh. is having the premiere of Civil, the first time a documentary is going to kick off the ABFF Festival. Great. Now, Civil is a powerful documentary about your struggles and victories against racism and discrimination, but the film is also about you. Why did you want to be part of this film that focuses on who you are as well? And what has led you personally down the path of struggle that you've chosen? 
You know, I chose this mission when I was in the fourth grade. I said, when I grew up, I want to be a civil rights lawyer like my personal hero, Thurgood Marshall, and try to make it better for people in my community and people who look like me to have a better opportunity at achieving the American dream, an equal opportunity at achieving the American dream. And I understand that, you know, to achieve this, we have to fight in two courts, not just in the court of law, but also in the court of public opinion. And the fact that Netflix, probably more than anybody else, has a global bullhorn to be able to speak truth to power. So that's why I agreed to do the documentary and pull back the curtains on my uh, professional life and in some regards on my personal life because I think that we have to make uh, more larger arguments in the court of public opinion uh, on a global basis. It has to be we are choosing tolerance over, you know, this race replacement theory, lynch mob mentality. Yeah. Uh, we are choosing humanity and respect for our humanity over white supremacy. We, you know, in essence, we're arguing for love over hate. And when I think about my case and representing the families of uh, Buffalo who were killed by that young white supremacist man, not boy, who went and killed all those innocent black people in that supermarket. Now, you were once denounced on Fox News as, quote, the most dangerous man in America. What is your response to that? You know, it, it's kind of profound when I think about it, because I thought about that. I said, well, I'm fighting for equal rights for black people. What's, what's dangerous about that? Uh, why do they see that as so dangerous for black people to get equal rights? But, you know, it, it is what it is, I guess. Uh, I I had an opportunity to meet Harry Belafonte down at the Trayvon Martin Remembrance Dinner. And uh, we, we had a, a very good conversation. You know, he was there with uh, Dr. King and many of the civil rights stalwarts. And he told me, he said, well, Ben Crump, what you have done is made civil rights law popular again. After the civil rights movement, he said, and everybody had equal opportunity to go work for these corporations and make money. That's what they all did. And they didn't think about civil rights much, but you have made people start striving to be civil rights lawyers again. And uh, for that there, he said, people will see you as dangerous. And he talked about, don't take that lightly because people are afraid of what they perceive as dangerous. And so I uh, continue to not take it for granted when people say you're dangerous and issue threats against your life. And you mentioned in the film that you're fighting, quote, racism that is hundreds of years old and endlessly continuing murders of people of color. So do you ever feel frustrated and in the face of defeats, hopeless, and have moments where you feel like just giving up? Uh, I, I don't. And uh, I, as, I, as Nadia Hargren, this brilliant uh, young filmmaker, uh, as she pointed out in the film when I said that there will be times when our hearts will be broken in certain battles. However, I know without a shadow of doubt that the enemies of equality will not win this war. The moral people, the people of good character, we will win this war based on the precedent of black people in America. We overcame 
the middle passage. We overcame slavery. We overcame segregation. We overcame Jim Crow. We overcame Jim Crow Jr. PhD Esquire. And so what that tells me is no matter what the enemies of equality throw at us, black people are going to overcome it. We're going to be all right. And as someone raised in working-class roots, your single mother working as a maid and in a shoe factory, how do you feel that has led to who you are today and your involvement in workers' rights and class divisions as well? I think it had a, a very pronounced influence on me watching my mother struggle for a minimum wage, you know, cleaning hotel rooms and washing bed sheets and uh, then going to her second shift to work at the shoe factory in a hot factory where they didn't get any kind of pension or any kind of uh, health care benefits. And they dealt with uh, discrimination and bigotry on a daily basis. It, it motivated me to go fight for people who now have to deal with that stuff. Uh, when you think about the suing all of these corporations for discrimination, whether it's uh, based on uh, denial of promotions or based on uh, people saying just racist things in your place of business, these microaggressions, then that goes back to honoring my mother and the struggles and the sacrifices that she gave for me and my brothers to be able to have a chance in life. And so I am so uh, thankful for her, and I'm always thinking about her when I go in courtroom and fight those battles. Now, you mentioned in the film that in the struggle, African Americans have also leaned on, quote, their black imagination. What do you mean by that? Uh, the black imagination, I think about my mother and my grandmother coming from South Lumberton. There were no lawyers in our little small town. There were no doctors, and no black lawyers, no black doctors in our small town. My grandmother would always talk to me about she wanted somebody in her family, our family, to be legitimate. Somebody in our family to be able to have an impact on our destiny and not be marginalized. And so I think she she relied on, she was praying and fighting for something she had never seen in reality. Um, but she knew that it was possible. And she inspired me to say, even though we come from this town where nobody goes to college, you end up working, cropping tobacco, in the tobacco fields, or you end up at a dead-end factory job, or you end up in jail, or you end up dead. That was the reality. But she relied on the black imagination that I imagine our ancestors in the cotton fields doing slavery relied on to say that I know there's a better world for my children. We just have to keep the faith and keep fighting for a better world. And speaking of jail, you also mentioned in the film that members of your family have been in prison, which is no surprise considering the racism of mass incarceration in this country. How did that also inspire you to become a civil rights lawyer? It was a big inspiration because I saw so many of my relatives have run-ins with the law, as many black people have uh, convicted felons in their family. And it inspired me to say that these trumped-up charges need to be challenged. Uh, we we need to try to hold the mirror to America's face and say, look at the hypocrisy. Little uh, young white people get a slap on the wrist for doing things that black people end up spending decades in prison for. I think often about how 
with uh, the war on drugs and this whole notion that, you know, they criminalize young black people for selling marijuana and put us in prison for decades for selling marijuana, which we know now in most states are legal. And now you have mostly uh, rich white men and the government going to make billions of dollars for selling marijuana, whereas when you have little black and brown people selling marijuana to make money to pay their bills, they all uh, arrested us and said that we were uh criminals and breaking the law but now that you have the government selling marijuana to make money to pay their bills everything is legal everything is fine well i object to that until they uh let every black person every brown person every marginalized person who was selling marijuana to try to make ends meet then the government should be prohibited from being able to make profits and make money from selling marijuana because it's nothing more than hypocrisy. Now, you also make the statement in the film, quote, everything in my career led me to George Floyd. Please explain. Yeah, I think about uh, Martin Lee Anderson boot camp case. I think of uh, Trayvon Martin uh, killing by the Neighborhood Watch volunteer. I think about the cases where we represented the uh, 13 black women who were raped in Oklahoma City by the police officer and George Floyd, this seminal civil rights case dealing with police abuse on black people seemed to be fate where we can finally take on this issue that has been a constant impediment for black life and black culture and black liberty with the whole world watching. And when Ben Crump looks in the mirror, what does he see? He see a young man who is becoming a little older, <laughs> but still committed been an unapologetic defender of black life, black liberty, and black humanity. And what do you hope Civil says to audiences out there about your work and about you? I hope that they understand what we're fighting for is to raise the value of black life. We're not trying to be superior to anybody, but we believe the declaration is correct when we say we hold this, these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equally, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that amongst them is the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we're saying with civil. We want it to be financially unsustainable for the police or anybody else to unjustly kill black people that our lives are not irrelevant, that our lives matter. Thank you so much, Ben Crump, for calling into the show, and I will get the word out about this extraordinary film. Thank you, and have them hashtag civil Ben Crump on Twitter. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye-bye, thank you. God bless you. And Civil is airing on Netflix and is directed by Nadja Halgren. And coming up next on Arts Express, Bro on the Global Television Beat, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Snowpiercers, People's Transport, versus the Lincoln Lawyers Luxuriating While the Planet Burns, Ecology at the Movies, and Gas Guzzlers, and what it all has to do with the world gas crisis, product placement, class, gas, race, and cultural props, tequila versus scotch, and stopping by a taco truck. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro breaks it all down. One thing I know... Success is all about momentum. In court, 
before you can win, you gotta believe you can win. But what if you don't? <laughs> then you better fake it till you make it. The Lincoln lawyer, that what they call you? Some do, yes. Why? They work out of my car. But that's not why you're here. Jerry Vincent left you his practice, including the Trevor Elliott trial. That guy who killed his wife and her boyfriend. Allegedly. You checked out well. I'm performing trial lawyer much better than Jerry until you went off the deep end. You took off at the dead Do you think dad's okay? Don't worry about him too, honey. I want our family back. Can we just take it one step at a time? Yeah. Someone has been following you. You're at risk, counselor. And then knock. Somebody thinks you know something. So what is it? Let him knock some more. Where are you going? I think better on the road. This city need a little protection. There's something really weird going on here. I'm missing something. Don't ask questions you don't want answers to. You need this just as much as I do. This is your one shot. So you better take it. Everybody lies. Even the best liars give themselves away. People are dead. Maybe you and I are next. Are we bringing the dog every day? He's still getting used to me working away from home. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Snowpiercer's People's Transport versus Lincoln Lawyer's Luxuriating While the Planet Burns. Since today's episode is about energy and TV series, by way of introduction, I would like to make a point about a residual effect of the war in Ukraine, if not the stupidest, certainly one of the most globally destructive wars humanity has ever engaged in and brought to you first and foremost by the U.S. and NATO in a proxy war with Ukraine as the victim to break up Russia in order to annex its vast supply of raw materials, particularly the oil in the Arctic. The point today is that the war, besides causing widespread famine with a lack of wheat, an enduring lack of produce with a holding back of fertilizer, is also in the area of energy, responsible for a regression to the worst, most dangerous, and most polluting forms of energy as countries, no longer sure of Russian oil and gas, and as prices rise, strive now for energy independence. In Europe, there's a new return to coal production, after that had mostly been shelved. And in Europe, as well as the rest of the world, there's a new concentration on nuclear power plants, as last week the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia all declared that they are interested in opening new reactors. Where will the waste from these plants, which endures for centuries, be dumped, and how safe will they be as they are rushed online? At the exact moment when the planet should be coming closer together to search all forms of safe energy, this war is forcing countries to take the opposite route and embrace forms of energy that moves the planet closer to a self-destructive endgame. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was the title of John Hughes's 1987 film, where a mismatched duo, the sloppy salesman John Candy and the, in his mind, dapper executive Steve Martin, travel across country in a variety of modes of transportation to reach Thanksgiving dinner in Chicago. 25 years ago, the film had great fun as all three methods of transport failed in various ways. But today, as people become more aware of imminent planetary destruction, planes, trains, and automobiles is a serious discussion on what mode emits less noxious gases. The correct answer by far is trains, which a 2020 European study reported emit 0.4% of all EU greenhouse gases in a sector which accounts for 25% of all emissions and 27% in the U.S. Planes accounted for 14%. By far the worst answer is automobiles, which accounted for fully 72% of noxious gases, which must be curtailed if the EU is to meet its goal of zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. It is in light of this crisis that the Netflix series The Lincoln Lawyer, whose lead defense attorney is whisked across Los Angeles in one of the great gas guzzlers of all time, a Lincoln Navigator, might be seen to contrast sharply with the TNT series Snowpiercer, whose motley crew of tailies are trapped with the middle and upper classes in a train that is the last hope of a humanity on a planet frozen because nuclear weapons destroyed the Earth's atmosphere. There's a huge gap in the two series, both ultimately on Netflix, but one originating on the mixed working-class cable station TNT 
It also shows up in their maintaining or working to overthrow their respective power structures. The Netflix original series, exec produced by David E. Kelly, known for the twists and turns of his TV courtroom dramas and Ally McBeal, Goliath, The Undoing, was preceded by the 2011 film introducing novelist Michael Conley's outrageous defense attorney, Mickey Haller. Again, at that point, with the climate crisis just coming to widespread attention, the spectacle of a dynamite defense lawyer who thought best in a luxury sedan still seemed quaintly amusing. The 2022 iteration goes all out, though, emphasizing the gas-guzzling attorney ferried about Los Angeles by a black female chauffeur in his Lincoln Navigator, one of three Lincolns he owned. The Navigator, an SUV with a price tag as high as $109,000, is close to the longest car built by Ford, involving the heaviest production, the greatest cargo space, and seating for more than six. In the show, then, it's a rolling corporate law office, spewing pollution as part of the exhaust of Haller's brilliant court mind, not to mention the ultimate in product placement, with the product featured in the title of this series utterly defining the lead character. When he gets out of his SUV, if he's not in court, Haller favors steakhouses, That is, his polluting and heavy carbon trace continues. Even the ultimate, in its own admission, capitalist tool, Forbes, is alarmed at this habit. Acknowledging that the meat and dairy industries account for 14.5% of total human greenhouse gas emissions. Beef, in the form of Haller's steak, is by far the biggest offender, generating nearly twice the emissions of the next largest animal offender, lamb with the methane gas produced by cows 34 times more potent as a polluter than CO2. What was quirky in 2011 in terms of Haller's habits is deadly in 2022. The series in its second week on Netflix was the most viewed on the streaming service, counting for 108 million hours of watching. Given that Hollywood has long been a promotional house for lifestyles and that Netflix circulates globally, The Lincoln Lawyer is a dangerous advertisement for, rather than curtailing, vastly increasing global destructive consumption, including validating Amazon and other rainforest destruction to plant food for increased beef production, which continues to be steadily on the rise. That process was described by a Harvard nutritionist who compared its polluting value to that of coal-fueled power plants as the worst thing you could do. While those on board Snowpiercer, a class and racially diverse crew, struggle to overthrow the system of oppression which binds them and which has created the conditions which has confined them to the train, the Lincoln lawyer, who boasts about his prowess on his license plates, which read, not guilty and dismissed, in fact, defends a tech gaming billionaire with a time-iron cliche that he doesn't care if he's guilty or not. In a nod to a half-hearted diversity, the lawyer is played by a Mexican actor, Manuel Garcia Rulfo. But his Mexicanness is only presented on the show as Flava. His Spanish accent is discernible throughout, but only acknowledged in a later episode where he explains his mother took him to grow up in Mexico. We are understand that this was just a phase of his upbringing. There is in the show no feel for the struggle of Mexican-Americans in L.A., for the lack of education and social services that keeps their wages low and furthers their status as second-class citizens. Garcia Rulfo explained that he was able to bring his Mexicanness to the show by in one scene ordering tequila rather than scotch and in another stopping by a taco truck. This is, of course, the definition of flavor, a meaningless stylistic tick, unconnected to neighborhood or community customs or struggle, but instead again employed in the service of consumption. The differences between the two shows also can be attributed to their respective channels and networks. Netflix continues to court a global, depoliticized middle class. Its recent series, First Kill, like The Lincoln Lawyer, is solidly in that vein. First Kill is a teen vampire series being compared to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but without that series' attack on the patriarchy. Instead, the concentration is simply on teen lesbian sex. At this point, not a groundbreaking, but after Killing Eve, simply a cliched lifestyle choice. Snowpiercer, developed by the most class-conscious director working in the cinema today, South Korea's Bong Joon-ho, from his film, will soon be followed by a serialized version of his other masterpiece of class antagonism, Parasite, commissioned by HBO perhaps as an antidote to that network's doting on the foibles of the rich in succession. Snowpiercer is initially broadcast on the TNT cable network, which has put together a remarkable because unique programming schedule meant to entice working-class audiences across racial lines. The network boasts the black space of National Basketball Association coverage and its perennial Emmy-winning Inside the NBA, 
with the outrageous and outspoken basketball intellectual Charles Barkley, holds court with his companion Kenny Smith, and their Anglo counterpart Ernie Johnson, who simply fits in as a member of the team. Equally, the network now also broadcasts the National Hockey League, more beloved by white working-class audiences, and the professional wrestling show AEW Dynamite. Besides Snowpiercer, its original series include the Anglo gangster series Animal Kingdom, adopted from an Australian show, and its recently finished series Claws, about the black female owner of a hairdresser and nail boutique who battles white gangsters trying to encroach on her territory. Thematically, the Lincoln lawyer, rather than taking up Kelly's more masterful Goliath about an alcoholic lawyer who contests corporate power, instead reverts to the more staid the undoing with a rich client who we suspect all along may be guilty but cannot bring ourselves to distrust until the revelation that, yes, indeed, someone that rich could be evil. Justice in the Lincoln lawyer comes not through the efforts of the lead character but simply by chance. Season three of Snowpiercer, on the other hand, ends with a startling and profound development. The revolution in season one by the Tailies is beaten back in season two by the appearance of the Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, capitalist in the fur coat, Mr. Wilford, who then institutes a reign of terror to maintain control of his train. Season three has the revolutionary cadre exiled from the train returned to retake control. The season flounders in the middle as various factions emerge to challenge this leadership, but the ending is truly remarkable. A debate emerges between the two factions on the train about what direction to pursue in order to best provide for the survival of all. Wilford seizes the opportunity of his squabbling to attempt to reassert himself as the leader. Instead, the two sides come together and oust him from the train. With the capitalists gone, they are then able to hash out a compromise that is each doing what they think is best for the train and what is left of humanity as a whole. The final lesson of this season's Snowpiercer is that if the world is shorn of its capitalist billionaires, its various peoples will find compromises that can yet save humanity. The final lesson of the Lincoln lawyer is that gas guzzling and beef consumption trump any consideration of how a more decent, equitable, and safe world may be achieved. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. Hello, everybody. This is Graham Nash from the Hollies and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Nash and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yes, I've been in a lot of bands. I want to say aloha and fond wishes to everybody listening to Arts Express. Express in our deep dive episode this week, The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism. Author Michael Hudson, a U.S. economist, professor, and former Wall Street analyst who can be heard on the podcast Left Out, exposes the parasitic and co-conspiratorial entities that are destroying the economy here and around the world namely landlords and banks. Quote, We live today in a society awash in debt, 
egged on by propaganda and advertising. Hudson's book is a warning to China about the dangerous designs of predatory capitalism on their country. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I'd like to introduce you to the newest book by Marxist economist Michael Hudson, with the imposing title of The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism. Well, it's not exactly summer beach reading, but it is one of those books that is added to my framework for understanding world events, and I greatly appreciate that. Now, I don't really understand economics as well as I would like, which is why I am glad that Hudson's somewhat oddly cobbled-together book keeps repeating the major points over and over for a lunkhead like me. Uh, The book's genesis is a little peculiar. It stems from a series of lectures that Hudson gave sponsored by Chinese academics in Beijing and Hong Kong. And Hudson's approach in his lectures is to basically outline the reasons capitalism in the U.S. has gone so awry in its domestic and foreign policy, and to send up a red flag, as it were, to the Chinese, a warning of the careful path that must be taken in their current mixed economy experiment if they are not to be undone by the internal and external dynamics of industrialization and foreign investment. What Hudson does is analyze what happened in the U.S., and then to point out over and over again what the danger zones are. So, with this set of warnings, Hudson lays out a worldview based on Marx, but focuses on a topic that Marx didn't get to until Volume 3 of Capital, and that's concerning the difference between finance capitalists and industrial capitalists. Hudson warns the Chinese that if they're not careful about the way they go about industrializing, they will fall into the same trap that the American industrial capitalists fell into, the capture of their economy by the finance capitalists and the rent-seeking profiteers who will destroy their economy both internally and externally. So let's back up a bit and turn, as Hudson does, to the 19th century economists. There's a lot of obfuscation and history down the memory hole when it comes down to the history of the 19th century economists. But one thing many of them agreed upon is this. Capitalism was in trouble if it was left unchecked. Even Adam Smith agreed on this. Adam Smith and David Ricardo and Karl Marx, though quite different ideologically, all agreed on one feature of capitalism that made it particularly destructive. The existence of a rentier class who made what they called unearned income. Nowadays, the term unearned income has been assigned to the dustbin of history by the very same rentier class that those political economists warned about. But it had a very particular meaning. The rentier class was defined in opposition to the industrial capitalist class. The industrialists made their money by exploiting workers' labor power. But at the end of the day, there was a product produced. That's one thing that capitalism is very good at, producing lots of products at the cost of exploiting workers. The kind of income made by this kind of industrial capitalist was called earned income because the output was considered a net gain to the economy. But the 19th century political economists understood another way of profit making, which did not result in any goods or expansion of the economy. Rather, it was a parasitic relationship where the profit was taken from money extracted from the economy with no goods produced. This was particularly true in two areas. First, landowners who charged rent. After all, the land is bought only once, and yet the landowner keeps extracting money without adding anything new to the economy. So rent is a subtraction, not an addition to the net value flowing through the system. And then there are the banks and credit lenders who make money from money, but again, have done no work for that additional tribute paid to them. 
The 19th century economists, though of different political persuasions, all agreed that this unearned income was a big problem for capitalism. After all, capitalism arose partly out of a rebellion of this very idea of paying monetary tribute to some privileged class. And from the point of view of the industrial capitalists, what the rentier class was asking for was a transfer payment that made their cost of doing business a lot higher. The 19th century economists had different answers to solving the question of the parasitic rentier class, but all were agreed unearned income was a problem that had to be solved. It was a remnant of the bad old days of feudalism, where a privileged few ate up society's resources while giving back nothing in return. But as Hudson explains, the dream of a restrained rentier class in the US was to die after World War I. Europe was in deep hock to the bankers and the rentier class gained more political power in the US. Industrial capitalists in Europe and the US had been enriched by protectionist laws and government policies that publicly subsidize healthcare, education, and infrastructure. Those policies ensured an educated, productive working class with lower wage requirements and hence lower operating and labor costs for business. However, the rentier class wanted just the opposite privatization of land and other essential services, so that the very cost of surviving would have to be paid through them. In effect, they wanted to be able to set up toll booths at choke points in the survival processes of businesses and workers to demand a feudal tribute. But for the rentier class to do this, they had to launch a kind of counter-revolution against not only workers, but the industrial capitalists as well. As they captured the political machinery of the United States, they sought to consolidate their position by a brand of propaganda that sought to erase all memory of the 19th century economists' distinction between earned and unearned income. As Hudson reports, in U.S. university economics departments, no longer was the concept of unearned income taught. Instead, the exact opposite was promulgated. Any income made must be because of some perceived benefit to the society. And therefore, the gross domestic product, the GDP, the general indicator of the size of a country's economy encompassing all goods and services produced, would not only include the value of the products being produced, but also the cost of debt financing and rental charges. Now, a moment's reflection shows how ludicrous that kind of accounting is. A million dollars worth of debt is said to be as contributory to the economy's health as a million dollars worth of, say, radios. Instead of debt being a drag on the economy, it magically becomes a boost. But it was all part of the rentier propaganda that their extraction of money from the business cycle was productive. The rise of the rentier class in the U.S., sometimes called the FIRE class, which stands for finance, insurance, and real estate, had enormous consequences both domestically and worldwide. And it was this that Hudson was trying to warn the Chinese about. The Chinese have been phenomenally successful in world trade because their labor costs were low. Why? Because of the public infrastructure, which produced educated workers who, again, because of government subsidy of basic living needs, did not need to be paid high wages. In addition, Chinese industry was financed through the Chinese public banks, and when debt financing became too great for a business to pay back, if it were a business the Chinese considered to be important, the government would simply wipe out the debt of the business. Which leads us to the whole matter of debt and debt cancellation. What Hudson and David Graeber and Marx before them realized about debt is the simple mathematical fact that because debt based on compounded interest grows exponentially and wages do not, 
The economy can never catch up to its debts. There'll always be more debts than the ability to pay it off. There are only two ways out of default when you don't have the money to pay a debt. Either take out greater debt, usually at a higher interest rate, to pay off the immediate debt, or foreclose. And that really is the rentier dream and end game. To capture more tangible rent-bearing assets, such as real estate, that in turn can then be used to command even more rents. We live today in a society awash in debt, egged on by propaganda and advertising of all kinds. It's considered a great move up the ladder to own one's own house. But in reality, in a capitalist society, a nation of homeowners is in fact a nation of mortgage debtors. And the mortgage debt interest is the rent that ends up in the banker's pockets. Now, financiers like to claim that they are charging interest because they're taking a risk of non-repayment. But in reality, there is no such risk. The borrower, first of all, is required to take out insurance against such loss for the bank. And what's more, the bank has the house itself as collateral for the loan. In the case of a deflationary spiral, where the value of the house ends up being less than the value of the mortgage originally taken out, as in the 2008 crisis, the banks turn to the federal government and get bailed out to the tune of trillions of dollars from the Federal Reserve at 0% interest. So it's all a scam. The borrower is being charged interest and fees for no service at all. There is one more way that the debt problem can be solved, as Hudson and Graeber pointed out, and that is for the government to declare a debt cancellation period. In the ancient Near East, this was exactly what was done by some of the rulers. Every few decades, all debts would be wiped out and the account sheets would be sent back to zero. In this way, the debt could not overwhelm the economy by pulling out all the wealth and assets into the hands of a few creditors. The Romans and Greeks did not do this, and it led to the downfall of their empires. This debt cancellation was called tyranny by the rentier class. In one of Hudson's really eye-opening passages, he relates that in Rome, Brutus and the Roman Senate were basically the rentier class of Rome, and they were terrified that Julius Caesar might call an end to debts. That's why he was considered a tyrant. But this is not just ancient history, this is our lives today, and it permeates every aspect of world politics. In Hudson's view, the major split in the world is a result of the rentier capture of the U.S. economy and how its industrial base has been destroyed by the financial class's rent-seeking. With no industrial base left to speak of, the only thing left for the U.S. to do in the world is what rentiers always do, lend money and charge rent. But again, the goal is always to keep the debtors on a string and ultimately to capture their assets. To expedite this, the U.S. imposes an austerity regime on debtor countries, including the forbidding of their building a proper industrial base, which only dooms the debtor countries to more poverty and more need to run up debt, and hence more asset sell-off and privatization. This is what is known in the U.S. as the free market. What we see happening presently in the war in Europe is the world realigning in this world war of the rentier class versus those trying to develop and grow their own industrial base. So Hudson's advice is a stark warning to the Chinese that as they go about their experiment in mixed economies, they must not allow a private financial rentier sector to develop. And equally, they must be wary of being financed by foreign loans. Well, there's lots more in this book, and it's not an easy read by any means, but it is rewarding, a book that may well get you reconceptualizing what is going on in the world. 
And so in this set of lessons for China, we get to understand that there's no turning back for the U.S. now. We've turned a corner and the rest of the world is rebelling and realigning. As Hudson reminds us, the words of Rosa Luxemburg, we are at a stark crossroads where either barbarism or socialism will prevail. The book is The Destiny of Civilization by Michael Hudson. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And you can get Michael Hudson's book, The Destiny of Civilization, from Eyelet Publishers. Hudson is a frequent contributor to Counterpunch magazine, and he's the author of Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. His other books include J is for Junk Economics and Killing the Host, which I would recommend as the first book of his to read if you're not familiar with his work. He's a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. Michael acts as an economic advisor to governments worldwide, including China, Iceland, and Latvia on finance and tax law. His website is called Michael Hudson on Finance, Real Estate, and the Powers of Neoliberalism. You can find him at michael-hudson.com. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.